the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Welcome to the Lloyd's List Podcast, your weekly view on the story shaping shipping. I'm Richard Mead, editor of Lloyd's List. The shipping industry has been flagging problems with the looming 2020 sulphur regulations for some time now. Fuel quality and availability issues are almost inevitable, and there's widespread concern that safety issues could follow. And yet, nobody is willing to accept any delays on the entry into force date. So when the world's major flag states and shipping associations argue for a period of pragmatic enforcement, whereby ships would not be unduly penalised in the event they can't find compliant fuel, does that represent an entirely sensible approach, or a potentially market-skewing grace period of enforcement? Those companies who invested billions of dollars to ready themselves for a hard start to the regulations on January the 1st, 2020, certainly don't like the sound of it. But Lars Robert Peterson, Deputy Secretary General of BIMCO, one of the co-signatories of the paper, believes that is exactly what needs to happen. Lars joins us from BIMCO HQ in Copenhagen to discuss these concerns. Thank you for joining us, Lars. Well, uh, thank you, Richard, for inviting me to participate in this uh, important issue. We're talking um, around the, the, the 2020 uh, self-cap, and you've been quite vocal about some of the concerns coming down the pipeline for the uh, for the shipping industry. There's concerns around quality uh, not being what it should be. There's uh, you know issues around operational problems. Uh, the bound to increase as the uh, the new sulfur regulation kicks in. The reality is that we're not yet sure what some of these blends look like. All of these concerns are not necessarily new. You've been talking about this for some time. But as we get closer to the 2020 deadline, you and a number of other associations and major flag states have put forward a number of these concerns in in an interesting paper that's going to be discussed at the International Maritime Organization's MEPC meeting next month, the Marine Environment Protection Committee. Could you just... Give our listeners a, a, a quick overview in terms of why you've done this and, and what issues you're addressing in this paper. Uh, certainly. Um, the, the, the paper has been, what you say, the next step in the process of uh, IMO also addressing uh, the safety concerns that, that has been raised and has been debated already at IMO in the uh, leading up uh, in, in this discussions about the, the uh, effective implementation of the new regulation. Um, so what we are moving forward here together with industry partners and a number of the uh, very big flag states in the world is a potential way of getting a bit more transparency uh, of the situation when we venture into this new uh, situation where most of the ships in the world will have to burn uh, 0.50% compliant fuel. Um, and, and obviously, uh, press in recent uh, uh, months have focused uh, mostly on reporting uh, all the uh, scrubber projects that have been under, being undertaken in the industry. But the fact of the, uh, the reality of the matter is that uh, come 2020, uh, 1st of January, still the vast majority of the fleet out there will be uh, without scrubbers and will have to comply in fuel. And when that happens, uh, we uh, have this rather non-gradual shift uh, in, in the type of fuel oil. And as you say, there are a lot of uncertainty. Uh, fully aware of all the uncertainties that that exist, and we saw that, uh, and we know that from from experience. Uh, you know, the more you blend, the more uh, the higher the risk you have for uh, ending up with something that can cause problems on board the ship, operational problems. Uh, related to uh, Indian performance uh, 
and, and use of the fuel in general. Uh, we saw that with the gradual shift, the emission control areas, we went from 1.5% to 1.0%. Um, these were not so large uh, volumes, but still we saw uh, the problems increase significantly. We can just look back in the uh, statistics uh, from the uh, fuel analysis uh, companies. So now we are in new environment, very, very large. And it is quite natural to expect uh, at least uh, the same degree of increased um, uh, quality issues with the fuel. So how do you deal with that? Well, a part of, of dealing with that is, of course, as you write to put in your in your various coverage of the issues that, hey, quality fuel oil is not. And, and I, for one, know that that is a chief engineer on ships, and I know exactly what this is all about. Um, so, no, it's not a new quality, but we will see a lot more of that, the risk of serious incidents, of course, also. So, one side of the coin is ship owners around the need to, you know, live up to the challenge and make sure that the crew on board, uh, if not already prepared, then prepared when they get there, manage the. The other side of the coin is, of course, that uh, fuel oil suppliers in live up to their responsibility of supplying fuels that are fit for purpose. Uh, and, and, and as you're well aware, in industry purchase fuel according to the standard from ISO 8270. Uh, we have to make sure that everyone's the latest version of that when they purchase fuel as far as possible, because these standards reflect uh, the contemporary, uh, let's say, uh, experience with the quality of the fuels and what are reasonable um, out-of-bound out of on board. So we have to make sure that everyone sticks with the standard. Um, and when that is not happening or when we uh, see other problems, especially those problems that uh, are laid down in marvelous, uh, the statutory requirements that we don't have the added substances that pose a danger to a safe operation of the engine and so forth, and the flashpoint and, and these issues which are, you know, laid down in law. We need to make sure that also the governments of the world where these fuel suppliers exist, they take on their responsibility, which also laid down six to take appropriate actions against fuel suppliers when they deliver something that is not accurately reflected uh, on the bongo delivery. Um, and, and this is really the, uh, the other side of it. Um, and how can we ensure that that happens? I mean, one of the ways to ensure that that happens, make sure that we know what goes on now. So the experience building phase that is suggested in the paper is, you know, it's really a transparency effort to uh, make sure that we all understand what crew on board the ships out there are facing uh, when we get into this new environment. Mm. So thank you. That, I mean, there's a, a very fulsome summary there of several fairly complex issues. But to boil it down, essentially, this experience building phase that you uh, have proposed, well, you personally, BIMCO, uh, Intertanko, Intercargo, as well as uh, some of the major flag states, uh, Marshall Islands, uh, Panama, Liberia, Bahamas, you know, some fairly heavyweight um, stakeholders in the shipping industry have, have joined together in this paper. And effectively, you're proposing that the initial introduction of this, if this regulation is probably going to have some problems, and therefore we're going to use an introductory period as unspecified in the, uh, in the in the proposal to uh, gather data and work out where the problems are and seek to resolve them. Now, that's not unduly, uh, you know, problematic, I guess. The issue is, 
Does that in any way look like a delay or a grace period on enforcement? Um, that's that's the sort of the the issue, I guess, that's raised by this approach. I think, and I have to make this absolutely clear, it has been our position for a long time that enforcement of the rule is essential to the, you could say, sustainable uh, business uh, of ship owners when we get beyond. Um, enforcement has been a key issue for us all the time. And I can assure you that there is nothing from our side suggesting that this should be um, in any way uh, relaxing the rec- What we are suggesting is that, hey, um, when ships, ship owners out there, charters or whoever, buy the right, have done everything in their best effort to obtain the right and actually paid for it, you know, sometimes you end up with something that is not quite as it should be, uh, and that is, you know, not on penalizing uh, part, which is contained in the paper. Uh, we are not suggesting that you say that, hey, uh, I can just buy, you know, the, the usual stuff and trade on that and claim that ah, I could. You know, there are very precise regular six that deals with non-availability. And one of the things that we all have to uh, understand is that the non-availability situation, although it's recognized in, from a regulatory perspective, a ship that burns uh, non-compliant because of non-availability is by default, and that is explicit in the regulation, in non-compliance with mm-hmm. the regulation. Um, so, so there is no doubt there. We, we fully recognize that. Uh, wh- what we say is, of course, that a, what is laid down in Annex 6 is then a set of mitigating circumstances. If that happens, how can you... How can you prove to the board state that you actually did what was prudent to get the compliance? Um, and that, of course, should then uh, serve the uh, the mitigating circumstances to avoid to be unduly penalized. We're not saying that you should not be penalized. It's, it's about uh, making sure that things are equitable. Uh, but the, the other part which I absolutely uh, emphasize here is that the second part of the, uh, of the enforcement scheme that we find is absolutely essential is the uh, the ban on carriage of non-compliant fuel that industry have suggested uh, to IMO should be put in place to give port states a, a handle to preempt uh, future uh, non-compliance of ship after leaving the port. This this regulation uh, is up for adoption at M73. We are absolutely uh, supporting. The adoption at M73 of the of the so-called carriage ban. Uh, there is nothing uh, is that suggests any delay on enforcement. Mm. Can I just um, at this point bring in our reporter Anastasios Adamopoulos, um, who has been looking at this issue, and we've been reporting this week, looking at this paper. Um, Anas, you've been talking to a number of uh, the ship owners that have already invested heavily, in many cases to the tune of billions of dollars. Uh, in scrubbers in order to adhere to a, a hard start um, for 2020. Their concerns are what exactly this paper? Well, I guess their concerns are that, you know, the paper effectively opens up again the discussion about some implicit delay in enforcement, which I know Lars just clarified it doesn't do that. But in their minds, this is what this does. This is what it basically opens up. And their fear is that while people... Other people, you know, who haven't invested in scrubbers continue burning up uh, the cheap the cheap fuel. Um, they're not getting their, their investment back from the scrubbers. And they, you know, some people 
compared it to uh, the the Ballast Water Management Convention, whose delay caused a few manufacturers to go bust. Uh, and you know, they they are worried that we would be heading down the same path. I guess, um, which I know, you know, Lars just explained that's not the intention. But uh, to, to go off of that, Lars, if I can ask. Um, the other thing that was tied to this discussion when I was speaking with people is that because the paper um, is fairly open-ended in some of, some of its points, uh, people are worried that even though you know your intention absolutely is not to bring in any kind of delay or grace period, uh, that's a discussion it might open up in the IMO and certain people who have been calling in the past will jump on that opportunity uh, and basically disrupt uh, the process. So, so what do you say to that concern? That you know, the basic, the basically, the paper, even if it doesn't intend to, opens up that discussion. Well, well, I guess in the first place that what you allude to is that that the uh, that the co-sponsors of this paper are the ones jump this argument, and and as I say, uh, we for ones are not, and I that others are also not uh, suggesting this. So, so I wonder who the others are who have not suggested it, but just are sitting back awaiting something to happen. Uh, which could uh, could make them jump this bandwagon. Uh, I, the, the discussion so far at IMO, uh, uh, Unison uh, stating that we go for first January 20, there will be no delay. Um, the only thing we are suggesting here is that, hey, we agree there should be no delay, but we also think that there is a reality to the world out there that uh, it is not, we should not close our eyes to it, um, but that doesn't mean that we're in a delay. Okay, and can I ask, um, you know, about the timing of the, of this proposal? Like, you know, like we discussed, some of these issues um, have been known for quite a bit. So could you, could you, you know, explain a little bit the reasoning behind doing this now, you know, 15 months before the, the cap comes into force? Um, there, there is a discussion that, that that started, I think, basically when we uh, made the decision at MEPC um, a few years ago to stick to 1st January 2020. And, and, and we, for, for one part, made the intervention that, that, yes, this is all fine, uh, but we also be- firmly believe that this will not be a walk in the park. There are serious concerns about implementation that we need to deal with, and that was basically... Uh, at the same meeting, then we're framed into a decision to advance this uh, this other agenda item, and I am dealing with effective implementation of the regulation. During the course of the discussions on effective implementations, which was um, um, tasked to the uh, Pollution Prevention and Response Subcommittee, um, the uh, the discussion on fuel quality and the safety aspects have emerged, um, not least during the last intersessional meeting over the summer uh, of the working group. And I think this is just a natural progression of, of that discussion. Um, and there is uh, already a recommendation from the intersessional meeting to uh, ask MEP 70 to relay the safety concerns uh, the Marine Safety Committee, which meets in December. Um, just to make sure that that the concerns are addressed appropriately, and so we can we could say close the book on that chapter. And so so the the timing is quite natural, uh, and there's nothing. Well, you can always speculate is this on purpose at this time. I think well, it just happens to be 15 months before. Uh, it's not something that has been on our mind. It's the natural progression of the discussion, the working group that leads to this. Um, and that discussion, it may end at C73, it might uh, 
be carried on. We hope it will be carried on to MSE because that's what intersessional working group actually decided uh, was the recommendation to do. But then again, uh, IMO can make an body. I'm very sure they will make the appropriate decisions. In the paper, you, you make a very uh, overt um, reference to the uh, the concerns, I guess, with the fuel oil supply sector. Could this paper be interpreted as an attempt to flag up these issues to the refiners and the fuel suppliers? Because, I mean, there is a genuine concern in the industry about the the quality and the availability of of, of fuel come 2020. Is this a a, a sort of a political salvo on on the part of the uh, the authors behind this paper? Well, there's absolutely a call on refiners and the oil supply business to to take their part of the, uh, you say, the burden on their shoulders. Uh, and we know from the availability study, uh, not only the uh, the official uh, availability study that IMO tasked with, with C dealt, uh, but also the supplementary study that we and EPA fun, uh, funded with, with, with some other organizations, um, uh, which was carried out by Ensys Energy and Navigistics. I mean, both studies, to a very large extent, uh, draws the same basic conclusions with regard to the capabilities. Uh, and possibilities of meeting uh, the 2020 requirement. Uh, and, and they point to the fact that there had to be basically a sourcing of every uh, molecule of low sulfur material available from any refinery in the world that, that, that has the ability to supply to the marine business. If we mix everything in the right way, uh, equal it out, you know, then there, the official study said that there was enough. The supplementary study said that well, we still think there will be uh, quite some strain on the supply business. But the, the fact of the matter is that the global refining industry is not a coherent, uh, well-organized uh, sector. I mean, there are there are laws in place to prevent them from actually, uh, you could say, sharing the market and making sure that everything adds up. So it's, you know, the ideal situation points to, you know, something that, that might be possible. Uh, but, but, you know... Uh, just, but the world is not ideal, and we think there is still uh, a need to flag this up to yeah. various, you could say, corners of the world and parts of the refining sector and the oil sector to make sure that that they actually do something about this. Mm. And the explicit reference to the experience building phase, where you, you're going to be collating some of these problems. I mean, do you think that is in any way going to be able to affect the? actions of the refining sector and the oil supply sector which you know do not come under any authority from the IMO um, you know how, how is this approach in any way going to help that well I'm not sure the, the actual collection of data is going to, to really flag much up to the refining sector per se uh, but it, what it will do it will it will make it possible for the IMO member states to uh, oversee the situation in their in their respective areas um, and and that uh, we hope will have some uh, carry-on effects uh, to make sure that the, the gaps are closed. Mm, okay. Um, and, you know, the the purpose of the experience building phase is to collect the data, review it, um, and then the final stage is potentially making certain amendments uh, into MARPO. Uh, so could you explain a little bit as you were, as you were doing this, you know, paper, um, what kind of changes 
would you expect or modifications would you expect to do to the actual regulation? And, you know, if there were any modifications being done, wouldn't that affect the actual um, future implementation of the regulation? I, I, I think we, we have to, you know, we have to look at this as something where there is a starting point, there is a potential endpoint, uh, or not even an endpoint, but, but at least that's the basis that is suggested. But I mean, how can you even discuss for change before you are actually seeing uh, the situation? So, so let's not let's not uh, you know should I say it? Let, let, let let's not uh, walk into a speculative discussion about what this could be or not be because I mean there is no suggestion for that. Uh, and by the way, any member state at any time can can actually ask for uh, an amendment to be done to any part of Marple if there is compelling need to do it. Um, so, so the whole thing uh, centers around the compelling need, and if there is no compelling need, there will be no change. Uh, so, uh, that's that's also uh, uh, an equally likely outcome of the whole thing. We we think just as a beginning, we to understand the situation and make sure we have the necessary transparency. When we have the transparency, we can then analyze the situation, and if there is a need, then obviously. I mean, you could skip out the phase three of the plan because that's some that's an option any any member states have anyway. So it's just mentioned there as as the what you say the natural progression. If there is compelling thing, then that can be done. It's not well, part of the proposal per se. Wonderful, um, Lars. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, there's a lot to uh, digest there. We will no doubt be coming back to you for further comments as we get closer to the 2020 deadline. But for now, thank you for joining the Lois List podcast. Well, thank you.